And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta here in Grand Rapids at Acton University 2022. Join me right now, Dr. John Pinero, who's professor of history and founding director of Catholic Studies at Aquinas College in Grand Rapids. He co-edited volume 12 of the presidential series of the papers of George Washington and is the author of several books, including Missionaries of Republicanism, A Religious History of the Mexican-American War. His newest book is The American Experiment in Ordered Liberty. Well, it's good to see you again. It's, it's good to see you too. Years. Yes. Yeah, especially in person. This is nice. Yeah, how, how, are things going well uh, at Aquinas College? Aquinas College. Uh, this spring, we hired a new president. She takes office in July. Okay. Uh, she yeah. was the Beeren Director of Catholic Studies at St. Mary's University in San Antonio. Okay. Her name is uh, Alicia Cordoba. And uh, we're pretty excited. We're yeah. pretty excited about her. That's and, good. Uh, That's good. Uh, so she uh, she plays the the oboe and the English horn. She has this interesting background. She composes music oh. dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And when, <laughs> when she took to the podium to uh, to introduce herself, and I uh, she uh, was carrying a rosary in her left hand, which she she says is perpetually with her. And one of the theologians immediately texted me and said she had me at rosary. So we're <laughs> We're, we're pretty excited. <laughs> that's that's very good news. Yeah. Uh, Want to talk? You're a historian, American historian, and uh, we've talked about your work, uh, missionaries of republicanism, and the presidency of James Polk and the Mexican American War. But I, I want to talk generally about how religion is treated by most American historians. I know that's a big question. Sure. And, and American historians are like real people. Uh, they have lots of differences. So, but religion, when I was growing up, and when I was in college even in the 1970s, religion was almost entirely ignored uh, when people talked about the history of the United States. I mean, it was there with the Puritans, you know, and occasionally you'd hear about the First Great Awakening, uh, but, uh, you know, not much the anti-communism of, of Fulton Sheen or Billy Graham or something like that. But there wasn't much... You got the idea that it was almost marginal to American history. Of course, as I got older and read more, I said, wait a minute, this is crazy. The Christian faith has been a, a, a real dynamic force within American history. Is that recognized? Well, like you said, it's a big profession. Yeah. I, I start by saying there was this piece I wrote for the Imaginative Conservative uh, website, maybe might have been 10 years ago yeah. now, just called Teaching American Religious History. And what I remembered was that as an undergraduate, my historiography book had, it was divided, American history was divided into eras, and then there was about 10 or 15 different subjects. None of the subjects were religious history, <laughs> that, none of them. Wow. And it's gotten better on, on the one hand, but yeah. there's still, but what's, what's lacking, I think, you mentioned early American history and the Puritans are mentioned, but if you go into colonial Virginia, their first set of laws are based entirely on the Old Testament, to the point where you wish there was a little, maybe New Testament mercy in them <laughs> if, if you look over these. And uh, and so even the so-called economic colony, and they're all settling for economic yeah. freedom, and that's divorced from religious freedom. That it's not even there in, in Virginia. Wow. And I mean, how do you how do you do uh, how do you cover Maryland without? Yeah. The religious history of Maryland and its Toleration Act, or Georgia, even with it—I mean, it was a failed experiment. But they hoped to live peaceably with Indians and have no slaves, and both yeah. of those things didn't work. Right, clearly, right. with Georgia at the time. In the in the profession, widely, I think nine eleven 
In 2001, September 11th, those yeah. attacks were a game changer, and just about every big department in the country hired Islamists. Well, not not Islamists, but uh, you know, is, that's that's how <laughs> we speak in the history Islam. profession, yes. right? Scholars <laughs> of Islam, and and but. What it was a wake-up call for many is there were so many historians who didn't take religious seriously. How for they, it's a hobby, it's an add-on, yeah. but it's not something that's driving you, and it, it's not the underpinnings, principles, etc. Yeah. And they realize there's people who really believe this stuff, and sometimes in the wrong way, but they really believe that fervently yeah. too. So there, yeah. were, I think there was more of an opening to it because of that. So they, they, would you say that the general attitude had been that religion is uh is not so much a causal force in history it's something that rides piggyback on other uh economic concerns or political concerns and religion gets used to justify those economic or political concerns and that that's the general leftward tilt and yeah. kind of marxist understanding of of things in general isn't it that yeah. we're we're determined entirely by only by self-interest and so uh, that's that's absolutely right yeah, yeah, but but if they were to go further back, and they were to treat religion when it was causally effective, it would be the Middle Ages. Yeah, but then oftentimes that wouldn't be treated well either. Yeah, uh, so. yeah. So, um, so I, I do you think that this is something you should mention nine eleven. So do you think this is an, uh, an enduring change? This interest in the religious ideas, institutions, individuals as uh, real actors in history. I don't okay. really. Okay. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wish it were. I wish it were otherwise. Yeah. Now, uh, and th- I say that because the, the profession as a whole, the historical profession, continues to fraction and uh, um, uh, break up into these smaller segments of race and class yeah. and gender. And if religion were were one of those, and that's what I tried to do in the in the missionaries yeah. of republicanism book, race. Uh, religion, yeah. uh, politics, try to join it all together and yep. show how all these overlap and lots lots of claims on the human person. And I, I think that's the best way to do it. There are synthetic studies being done like that. But generally, when you're coming out of a graduate school, you're, have, you're engaged in such a focused study of something. And these categories of analysis, whatever it is, it's the rage is probably what you're going to be using. So there's, there's going to be some universities, yeah. uh, of course, that that uh, are going to be investigating religion. I, I just want it taken seriously, Yeah, of course, as a, as a mover of human events, as inspiration. Yeah. I mean, you're as, not doing apologetics. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, right. tr- you're trying to look what's, what's really happening here. Uh, yes, and if, if you saw, after my last, uh, I did a, a, a teaching, I think it's called a Teaching American Hi- Teaching History on uh, C-SPAN. I had one of my lectures on there. They came to Aquinas College, came into the classroom, filmed, and, and that was a lot of fun. Weird, but, but fun to have them in the classroom. And I, I received emails praising me for how balanced my presentation was, and then I received one that said I was I was so woke it was painful and I really need to tell the people the real patriotic American history and for anybody who knows me that that's the one I want to share around the you know the table and and have a few laughs but it's sometimes it is really in the what people hear is very different than than what's said it's a good lesson to me when I hear an historian who I immediately want to knee-jerk think is uh, arguing something well maybe he or she's not not arguing what I think I I have to listen closely sure Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah Um, uh, this this uh, preoccupation with gender and race, uh, which shows up everywhere in corporate America, in universities, uh, and 
and don't you, we don't have to go down this road if you don't want. But uh, I saw an uh, article the other day uh, making the claim that the pro-life movement uh, has its origins in disappointed segregationists. Okay, it's an absurd. It, I, I I know I've seen this before. Uh, I know where they're going, and it's 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 would be easy to discredit. I mean. The pro-life movement was already flourishing before Jerry Falwell came on. So if you want to say Jerry Falwell was a segregationist early on in his life, then he latched on to the pro-life movement, fine. They could, I'm not going to argue with you. But it's just hard to imagine early defenders of life, a lot, lot of them Catholic, from the North, <laughs> being segregationists. Yeah. It, so... But well, to, and let's 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 say there let's say some were let's sure. let's take a look. You think of the Civil War as a as a war between Christian yes, nations, yes. In, in a sense, as some historians like uh, Harry Stout at, at Yale have have argued. Well, that that doesn't negate that other position, right. uh, of course. Uh, the, with the abolitionist movement and the civil rights movement being predominantly Christian yeah. movements, arguing yeah. for the intrinsic evil of of racism and and, and slavery. Yeah, I, I just, it's, I think there's a, there's a political use to history which is becoming more and more um, uh, latent, an abuse of history. And well, I, we're not, we're not called on it because we're in the, the era of cable news yeah. and vlogs and etc. And they, they move so quickly that they're not, they're not going. Nobody's. I hate to use the term fact-checking, but yeah. in other words, you're not really dealing with professional historians. You're generally dealing with an argument, and then the professional historians are making that kind of, that kind of argument yeah. as, as well. It's the old fallacy where, you know, if I can associate the person, the pro-life movement, with something else that's unpalatable, right. then that's supposed to make the pro-life yeah. movement yeah. unpalatable. It's not so much that you're seeking the truth of the matter. You're trying to achieve... Some other rhetorical purpose. You, it was striking to me. I went to the Henry Ford over in Detroit this yeah. past this past weekend, which was wonderful, and the motor muster was out. It was a lot of fun. You were there on Saturday. I was. I, I was, was there on Friday. Oh, were you? <laughs> <laughs> we I, I were. Well, I was there on Friday, spending the night, but I didn't go to the museum until Saturday <laughs> with the family. Yeah. And I was walking through the, taking my uh, wife and daughter through the civil rights section. Yeah. And I, I didn't show her everything. There's some things that are too, too disturbing maybe for a, a nine-year-old just yet. Uh, but they do a pretty good job, and yet as you walk through there, you get the, what you're really getting is the, the last version of American history. And the the next big thing in the civil rights movement is this tiny exhibit they had on homosexual and, yeah. and gender rights, etc. Et, et yeah. and, and it was very small, but they had it. They could They could check the box that they had it. But all I thought, what was really missing to me from the history of the civil rights movement was the rise of the pro-life movement defending unborn life uh, in the 1970s. And yep. this was something Father Newhouse used to say, how yep. it seemed like the most natural move in the world to go from that first civil rights movement to thinking about civil rights for the, the unborn. Expanding the circle around yep. those for whom we'll take responsibility as we the people. Yep. And it, I agree with you. It's, it, you would think it would have been an easy slide into that, especially since there had been so much Christian input into the uh, the civil rights movement uh, early on. It's a complicated movement. It, it changes as time goes on. But yeah, I, you would have hoped that. I saw that same exhibit last year when I was there, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I had a similar impression that it didn't, it, um, 
you know, it's, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's fine as far as it goes, but it, it doesn't. I mean, there's nothing in the exhibit. In other words, it's wrong or portrayed right. inaccurately, but the whole narrative itself, you can see that that really matters, yeah. right? The, the whole narrative itself, because it's all uh, history's interpretation. For those of us, which is most of us who weren't, especially in the distant past, we, we have to interpret, yeah. and that's their interpretation. Yeah. Uh, can you stay with me another segment, or do you have to take Sure. Off? Okay, good, good. My guest is Dr. John Pinero. Uh, we're talking about his, teaching history, the role of religion in uh, understanding the American past. We're going to continue. I'm Al Cresta. We'll be right back here in Grand Rapids, by the way, at uh, Acton University 2022. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. We're here in Grand Rapids, Michigan at uh, Acton University 2022. I'm talking with Dr. John Pinero, professor of history uh, and the founding director of the Catholic Studies uh, program at Aquinas College in Grand Rapids. And we've been talking about uh, American history, the role of religion in understanding uh, the American experiment. Uh, I did, I, I was reading your teaching American religious history. Uh, this back in August 2011, so you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a while ago. One of the, way back now, when I was in, still at the university, um, I, there was one theologian at the University of Pittsburgh whose son was a colleague of mine at Michigan State when we were students. And his father was a big advocate for Jonathan Edwards, and he was, I, I think, helping on the collected edition that Yale published. And he he was he used to praise the American historian Perry Miller uh, for all the work that he did taking the Puritans seriously in that era mm-hmm. of American history. Um, I don't know if uh, Perry Miller had any uh, personal spiritual commitments or what, what he was on. He was was he an eighth straight, straightforward atheist. I, that's my understanding. Yeah, yeah he, Perry Miller was um, a mentor to Edmund Morgan. Who yeah. also is early Americanist, yes. and, and yeah, his, that my name. mentor was one of Morgan's students. So okay. we almost have a, we have a sort of lineage there. Oh, that's but that's interesting. I, I, my my mentor at the undergraduate and master's level was also he was also a, I, I don't know what to call him a committed atheist. Yeah. but I always found it interesting how well Miller could understand the Puritans. Yeah, um, and and that's what I you know I can respect that because yes. he he's yeah. able to get behind their eyes mm-hmm. and kind of see the he, world. He took he took them seriously. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um why again I don't want to get too far off on this but is he lo- is he no longer respected as a legendary figure in American history that whose work should be appreciated? I'm probably not enough of a colonialist to to okay. know for sure. Uh, I he's certainly going to be read in graduate schools and, and seminars. Yeah. But probably since supplanted, it would be my guess. But yeah. that's that's just my best guess. Yeah. That. Just yeah. just knowing the tenor of the profession and looking at the titles of new books and reading book reviews yeah. of of them, that kind of thing. That uh, uh, that would be my suspicion. Only because he really he he delved into that Puritan dilemma. 
and yeah. Puritan dream and the errand into the wilderness, which you like to, to stress. I, I will say that whenever the topic of American exceptionalism comes up, Miller's name usually comes up. He's okay. the one who closes this famous essay of his by saying, okay, the errand into the wilderness was done. Nobody in Europe is looking. You're going to be a city on a hill, and now no one's looking. What's what's your purpose? So they they turn they turn and face west. In other words, they they turn and face America. Now their mission is into America. And eventually, though Miller wouldn't have argued this yet, that evolves into maybe everything from making the world safe for democracy, yeah. making it democratic, etc. Evolves into a very different kind of mission in the 20th century. Yeah. And yeah. at least people who really like Miller would probably trace that to to Miller his understanding of the Puritans and their mission. Well, let me, let me go to a president that uh, you know well, and that's uh, James Polk. Where was he at spiritually, religiously? James K. Polk had a, had a mix of a Presbyterian and Methodist background. And uh, and so he was he was a churchgoer. I, I don't think he was known, that, to my knowledge, he wasn't known as a deeply spiritual man, yeah. but he was a churchgoer, and I think a lot of that was his wife, Getting mm-hmm. him to church. In fact, he was, I want to say he was Methodist, but he attended Presbyterian because his wife was Presbyterian. But I, I may have that backwards. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's, it's one or the other. I, when, I read, uh, when I read Polk's diaries, his letters, etc., especially in conjunction with the Mexican War, which had a lot of overtly religious and anti-Catholic yes. language associated with that war, none of it really comes from Polk. He was, he was a very firm believer in religious freedom. Yeah. And when when a particular preacher came in at the time of the Mexican War and had found out that Polk had had appointed two Jesuit chaplains, the first Catholic chaplains ever in, in the U.S. Army, to go with the army to to Mexico, when he left, Polk wrote terrible things about that that preacher in in his in his diary. Yeah, interesting. He came in and just disparaged, and I hate this kind of sectarianism. And he just wrote how he, he couldn't stand it, and and that may have been. In that era, maybe he lacked such deep religious commitments that he thought it, it was all the same, so it's all fine. Right. right. But I, I suspect he, he really had a genuine uh, love for religious freedom. And, yeah. and by the way, he didn't trample freedom of speech during the Mexican-American War either, even though it was unpopular and he was criticized in the way that other presidents had. He and yeah. Madison probably hold the only... They hold the award for that, I guess, huh. uh, trampling civil liberties the least oh, in, in wartime. Madison makes sense. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I hadn't thought of yeah. Polk, though, in that same yeah. category. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Catholic dimension of the Mexican-American War, was it, was it uh, in, in the reporting on it, in the debate over it, was it a Protestant versus Catholic war? In the eyes of some, it was. Uh, it, and I would say a important facet of manifest destiny that was that we're really talking about the destiny of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants right. to overspread the continent. And that inevitably means that Catholics will have to be removed or, or overcome. And there were plenty of people like Lyman Beecher arguing yep. just that and Samuel F. F. B. Morris arguing it's just plea that. From, plea for the West or something. For it to save the West, uh, yep. that the Catholics were infiltrating the West, that the Pope, because of his difficulties yep. in Rome by the 1840s, might even pick up and move to the Mississippi <laughs> River Valley. Right, right. And if you've ever been to Rome, I'd rather be a prisoner in Rome than, <laughs> than live in the humidity of the Mississippi Valley. But, uh, I, but whether, whether politicians opposed or favored the war, no matter the party, they tended to draw from that anti-Catholic rhetoric. Okay. So where the Whigs opposed annexing Mexico, they would oppose it because they would say, we're, we're not going to annex three million uh, non-white Catholics. We're just not going to do it. 
and the the, the Democrats would they, they would they would propose annexing it and then try to get the evangelical vote by saying, "Hey, we can evangelize them now and convert them all, and then we'll <laughs> we'll save the continent." Yeah. Uh, so wow. any any way you wanted to spin oh, it, you funny. could you could use it. It uh, never did degenerate into what I would call a a religious war, right? Though. But there's right. there's certainly enough incidents that I detail in the Missionaries of Republicanism yeah. book. Wow. Um, uh, for people who are unfamiliar with, so so there's all these charges of white supremacy that are leveled today and leveled in our past. Um, white supremacy. In, in that broad way was not controversial yes that's correct it was it, it, it was not so it, it would be hard to find in the I'm most familiar with the congressional speeches I yeah. mean I think John C. Calhoun probably takes the cake on this so he, during the Mexican war he got on the floor of the senate and said Our, quote unquote ours is the government of the white man yeah, that's you can't get much more <laughs> that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty clear right <laughs> and, and what what he meant for the most part, besides the white supremacy, he was a defender of slavery by that time, of course, a very vocal one, uh, was was it the, the liberties Americans had were not universal. They weren't due to everybody. They yeah. were due to the descendants of, of the Anglo-Saxon. Yes. And they, they knew best what to do with them, and other peoples wouldn't. So they, But Calhoun opposed the war as an abuse of executive authority. Mm. Uh, but, but that was his argument. For not annexing Mexico, that non non whites could not function in a democracy. He so he, he saw argued. the he, he saw cultural implications to uh, Catholicism, which he didn't like. Which he yes yeah which he did racial and cultural yeah yeah so yeah. that Mexico has the has the worst combination of both as far as Calhoun and and some of those who were arguing that during yeah. the 1840s would yeah. say so they're they're non white according to the uh, American rhetoric and then they're also Catholic. And there's almost this competition in some of the literature to find out why Mexico is economically stagnant and politically unstable. Is it because they're Catholic or yes. is it because they're uh, too much Indian blood? I mean, it's all across the board so that you do get the sense, at least in the mid-1800s, Americans in their mind aren't separating race and religion and nationality and culture. Yeah. It's all one thing. There's even yeah. people using phrases like the Protestant race. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Well, I, the reason I bring this up is because um, it, it, we talk so often, you hear today people talking about the American past and questioning whether, on balance, America is a force for good or evil in the world. And the, then you hear people begin talking about America's history of racism. And it, it seems to me that they're, that they're not distinguishing what. The difference between having a clearly thought out ideological racism and the kind of just cultural assumptions that if you're born into a world like this, you're probably going to have them. Lincoln had them, for heaven's sakes. It took a while for him to really accept the intellectual uh, astuteness, uh, which was shown to him by Frederick Douglass, as I understand it. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you, I guess, defend... Uh, the United States and its history against charges of bigotry which were n not so much well thought through by the population of the United States but were basically cultural presuppositions and assumptions. Uh, how, it seems to me there's two different things here. Yeah, and, and maybe more than two. It, it, so I, 
I would put it this. I, I I would look at it this way. I don't think it's any historians or Americans' job to defend everything the That's U.S. Right. government fair, has fair done enough. or yes. Americans have done any more than I. I would say the same thing as a Catholic historian. Yes. That there's there's plenty I could point to in in church history. Yes. Uh, where where uh, the sons and daughters of the church have behaved questionably yeah. at, at best, and of course uh, yeah. nefariously at. At, at worst. So what, what what I try to do is I, I'll take Thomas Jefferson as an example mm-hmm. because it's such an obvious example because he writes the beautiful words in the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. He rests our our uh, our equality in something transcendent in God yep. that, that yep. transcends us so that it can't be taken away by government nor seen as a gift uh, of government. He's later quoted by Martin Luther King during the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, Martin Luther King never argues that we should throw away the Constitution and the Declaration, but rather we should live up to their best, uh, uh, you know, their their best meaning and best interpretation. So I say, when it comes to Jefferson, I, I think what we get an example with, especially with the founders, is is what flawed people can accomplish. And I think when we only look yeah. at the flaws, then we we lose sight of the fact that we're we're all flawed, and we're all deeply That's flawed. Right. And I'm at an ecumenical conference, so maybe you, you might have a Calvinist thinker on later, and he'll say deeply, deeply flawed. <laughs> but but uh, so we're 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 all flawed, and but not not all of us write the Declaration of Independence right. or the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom or manage to take a revolution which could easily spiral out of control as those did in Latin America into endemic violence and revolution, and steer it through compromise and intellect. Yeah. And just hard hard work into a, into a pretty stable country. Yeah. And one that in under 100 years does eradicate slavery. Yes. In, in a war, in, yeah. in fact. It, it, yeah, yeah, it took a, a war bloody to war. And, yeah. but, but in other words, there's that implication even in the Constitution with the outlawing in 20 years to come of the, internet, of the, of the slave trade. That in fact, there is something, even if they're not going to talk about it much, yeah, clearly they're aware that there's something wrong with enslaving other human beings. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Uh, yeah, I, I'm just it, it frustrates me when uh, people accuse uh, when they when they refuse to accept. I, I know what I'm trying to say here. I don't like taking the standards of 2022 and assuming that the people of 1840 uh, hold the same presuppositions uh, about the human person that I hold today. So it just, it seems to me something's wrong with that kind of standard. So thank you, Al. Well, I wish you had more time, but thank you. Uh, it's always thank good you very to see much. you. And I always enjoy it, John. You as well. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Dr. John Pinero, again, Aquinas College here in Grand Rapids, where he's professor of history and the founding director of the Catholic Studies Program. I'm Al Cresta.